Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 19 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth Woodville, Chapter 2, Part 1. Elizabeth's court is described in a lively manner by an eyewitness who was her guest, both at Windsor and Westminster, in 1472. This person was Louis of Burges, Lord of Grothus, Governor of Holland, who had hospitably received Edward when he fled in the preceding year from England, and landed with a few friends at Sluys, the most distressed company of creatures, as Comines affirms, that was ever seen. For Edward had pawned his military cloak, lined with marten fur, to pay the master of his ship, and was put on shore in his waistcoat. The Lord of Grothus received him, and fed and clothed him. This Fleming had previously performed a mighty service for Edward, when, as ambassador from Philip of Burgundy, he had visited Scotland, and broken the contract between the daughter of the Scots Queen Regent and the son of Margaret of Anjou. Finally, Grothus lent Edward IV money and ships, without which he would never have been restored to his country and queen. After his restoration, Edward invited his benefactor to England, in order to testify his gratitude and introduce him to his queen. A journal, written either by this nobleman or his secretary, has been lately brought to light, containing the following curious passages. When the Lord of Grothus came to Windsor, my Lord Hastings received him, and led him to the far side of the quadrant, the quadrangle of Windsor Castle, to three chambers, where the king was then with the queen. These apartments were very richly hung with cloth of gold arras, and when he had spoken with the king, who presented him to the queen's grace, they then ordered the Lord Chamberlain Hastings to conduct him to his chamber, where supper was ready for him. After his refreshment, the king had brought him immediately to the queen's own withdrawing room, where she and her ladies were playing at the martu, and some of her ladies, were playing at cloches of ivory, and some at divers other games, the which sight was full pleasant. Also King Edward danced with my lady Elizabeth, his eldest daughter. In the morning, when matins were done, the king heard in his own chapel, that is of St. George, at Windsor Castle, our lady mass, which was most melodiously sung. When the mass was done, King Edward gave his guest a cup of gold, garnished with pearl, in the midst of the cup was a great piece of unicorn's horn, to my estimation seven inches in compass, and on the cover of the cup a great sapphire. Then the king came into the quadrant. My lord prince, also borne by his chamberlain, called Master Vaughan, bade the lord Grothus welcome. 
The innocent little prince was then only eighteen months old. Then the king took his guest into the little park, where they had great sport, and there the king made him ride on his own horse, a right fair hobby, the which the king gave him. The king's dinner was ordained, ordered, in the lodge in Windsor Park. After dinner, the king showed his guest his garden and vineyard of pleasure. Then the queen did ordain a great banquet in her own apartments, at which King Edward, her eldest daughter, the Duchess of Exeter, the Lady Rivers, and the Lord Grothus, all sat with her at one mess, and at another table sat the Duke of Buckingham, my lady his wife, my Lord Hastings, Chamberlain to the King, my Lord Berners, Chamberlain to the Queen, the son of Lord Grothus, and Master George Barth, secretary to the Duke of Burgundy. There was a side table, at which sat a great view of ladies, all on one side of the room. Also on one side of the outer chamber sat the queen's gentlewoman, and when they had supped, my lady Elizabeth, the king's eldest daughter, danced with the Duke of Buckingham, her aunt's husband. It appears to have been the etiquette of this court, that this young princess, then but six years old, should only dance with her father or uncles. Then about nine o'clock, the king and the queen, with her ladies and gentlewomen, brought the lord of Grothus to three chambers of pleasance, all hung with white silk and linen cloth, and all the floors covered with carpets. There was ordained a bed for himself, of as good down as could be gotten. The sheets of wren's cloth, also fine festoons, the counterpane cloth of gold, furred with ermines. The tester and sealer, also shining cloth of gold, the curtains of white sarcent. As for his head suit and pillows, they were of the queen's own ordering. In the second chamber was likewise another state bed, all white. Also in the chamber was made a couch with feather beds, and hanged above like a tent, knit like a net, and there was a cupboard. In the third chamber was ordained a bane, bath, or two, which were covered with tents of white cloth. Could the present age offer a more luxurious or elegant arrangement in a suite of sleeping rooms than in those provided by Elizabeth for her husband's friend? And when the queen, with all her ladies, had shown him these rooms, the queen, with the king and attendants, turned again to their own chambers, and left the said Lord Grothus there with the Lord Chamberlain Hastings, which despoiled him, helped him undress, and they both went together to the bath. And when they had been in their baths, as long as was their pleasure, they had green ginger, divers syrups, confits, and hippocras, served by the order of the queen. And in the morning he took his cup with the king and queen, and returned to Westminster again. And on St. Edward's Day, 13th of October, King Edward kept his royal state at Westminster Palace. In the forenoon he came into the parliament in his robes, on his head a cap of maintenance, and sat in his most royal majesty, having before him his lord spiritual and temporal. Then the speaker of the common parliament, named William Allington, declared before the king and his nobles the intent and desire of his commons, especially in their commendation of the womanly behavior and great constancy of his queen, when he was beyond the sea. 
also the great joy and surety of his land, in the birth of the prince, and the great kindness and humanity of the Lord Grathus, then present, shown to the king when in Holland. Grathus was then, with all due ceremony, created Earl of Winchester. Ah Cleve, the poet, reading aloud his letters patent. Then the king went into the white hall, whither came the queen crowned. Also the prince, in his robes of state, born after the queen, in the arms of his chamberlain, Master Vaughn. And thus the queen, the king, with the little prince carried after them, proceeded into the abbey church, and so up to the shrine of St. Edward, where they offered. Then the king turned down into the choir, where he sat in his throne. The new Earl of Winchester bare his sword unto the time they went to dinner. As a finale to the entertainments, King Edward created a king-at-arms, baptizing him Guienne. Norroy was forced to proclaim the largest of the new Earl of Winchester, since Master Garter had an impediment in his tongue, a circumstance affording much mirth to the king. A void of light refreshments was then served to the king, and the Lord Grathus made his congé. The queen's visit to Oxford took place soon after. It was long remembered there. She arrived from Woodstock after sunset with the king, her mother, and the Duchess of Suffolk. They entered Oxford with a great crowd of people running before the royal chariots, bearing torches. The queen's brother, Mr. Lionel Woodville, the new chancellor, received and harangued the royal party, who tarried till after dinner the next day. King Edward viewed the new buildings of Magdalen, and made an oration in praise of Oxford, declaring he had sent his nephews, the sons of the Duchess of Suffolk, to be educated there as a proof of his esteem. The queen presided over the espousals of her second son, Richard, Duke of York, with Anne Mowbray, the infant heiress of the Duchy of Norfolk. St. Stephen's Chapel, where the ceremony was performed, January 1477, was splendidly hung with arras of gold on this occasion. The king, the young prince of Wales, the three princesses, Elizabeth, Mary, and Sicily, were present. The queen led the little bridegroom, who was not five, and her brother, Earl Rivers, led the baby bride, scarcely three years old. They afterwards all partook of a rich banquet, laid out in the painted chamber. The innocent and ill-fated infants, then married, verify the old English proverb, which says, Early wed, early dead. Soon after this infant marriage, all England was startled by the strange circumstances attending the death of the Duke of Clarence. Edward the Fourth, though deeply stained with crime, was, in the earlier periods of his life, susceptible of the tenderest feelings of natural affection and disinterested love. He had acted the part of a kind parent to his father's unprotected younger children. Clarence was not more than twelve years old at the Battle of Towton. It is therefore evident that he owed his high station wholly to the valiant arm of his elder brother. The best feelings of Edward were outraged by the unprovoked revolt of Clarence, nor did his return to allegiance, prompted as it was by the most sordid motives, raise him in his brother's esteem. Edward possessed, in an exaggerated degree, the revengeful spirit of the royal line of Plantagenet. He shall repent it through every vein of his heart, was his usual expression if anyone crossed his will. 
and he too often kept his word. But if the misdeeds of a brother he had once so fondly loved were not likely to be forgiven by Edward, they were still less likely to be forgotten by the queen, who had been cruelly injured by Clarence. Her beloved father and her brother had been put to death in his name. Her brother Anthony, the pride of English chivalry, had narrowly escaped a similar fate, at a time when Clarence was a more active and responsible agent, and her mother had been accused of sorcery by his party. Towards the spring of 1477, Clarence commenced a series of agitations, being exasperated because the queen opposed his endeavor to obtain the hand of Mary of Burgundy. Although so anxious for a wealthy marriage, his grief at the loss of his wife, Isabel of Warwick, had almost unsettled his reason, and he had illegally put one of her attendants to death, whom he accused of poisoning her. He muttered imputations of sorcery against the queen, in which he implicated King Edward. The queen was at Windsor with her royal lord, when news was brought him that his brother Clarence, after sitting at the council board for many days, doggedly silent, with folded arms, had one morning rushed into the council room, and uttered most disrespectful words against the queen and his royal person, concerning the deaths of his friends Burdett and Stacy. The comments of the queen did not soothe Edward's mind, who hurried to Westminster, and the arrest, arraignment, and sentence of the unhappy Clarence soon followed. He was condemned to death, but the king demurred on his public execution. Clarence had, since the death of his beloved Isabel, desperately given himself over to intemperance, in order to drown the pain of thought. In his dismal prison, a butt of Malmsey was introduced, where he could have access to it. The duke was found dead, with his head hanging over the butt, the night after he had offered his mass penny at the chapel within the tower. Probably Clarence was the victim of his own frailty. He was beset with temptation, despair, loneliness, a vexed conscience, a habit of drinking, and a flowing butt of his favorite nectar at his elbow, left little trouble either to assassins or executioners. The partisans of the queen and the Duke of Gloucester mutually recriminated his death on each other. Gloucester was certainly absent from the scene of action, residing in the north. On the St. George's Day succeeding this grotesque but horrible tragedy, the festival of the Garter was celebrated with more than usual pomp, and the queen took a decided part in it, and wore the robes as chief lady of the order. The queen kept up a correspondence by letter with the Duchess of Burgundy, with the ambitious hope of obtaining the hand of Mary of Burgundy for her brother, Lord Rivers. When the Duchess visited the court of England in August 1480, the queen's youngest brother, Sir Edward Woodville, was sent with a fleet to escort her. The Duchess sojourned at Cold Harbor, the city residence which lately belonged to her deceased brother Clarence. Among other gifts, she was presented, at her departure, with a magnificent side saddle. The queen's accomplished brother, Lord Rivers, continued his patronage to the infant art of printing. In the Archbishop of Canterbury's library, there is an illuminated manuscript, representing Earl Rivers, introducing his printer Caxton, and a book, to King Edward and Queen Elizabeth, 
who were seated in state with their son, the Prince of Wales, standing between them. The prince is very lovely, with flowing curls. The last years of King Edward's life were passed in repose and luxury, which had most fatal effects on his health. He had long given the queen's place in his affections to his lovely mistress, Jane Shore, a goldsmith's wife in the city, whom he had seduced from her duty. The death of Edward the Fourth is said to have been hurried by the pain of mind he felt at the conduct of Louis the Eleventh, who broke the engagement he had made to marry the dauphin to the princess Elizabeth of York, but intermittent fever was the immediate cause of his death. When expiring, he made his favorites, Stanley and Hastings, vow reconciliation with the queen and her family, and, propped with pillows, the dying monarch exhorted them to protect his young sons. He died with great professions of penitence. If the king left any directions for the government of his kingdom during his son's minority, they were not acted upon, for no will of his is extant, but one made at the time of his invasion of France, 1475. Accepting the control of his daughter's marriages, this document gave no authority to the queen, though it secures to her, with many affectionate expressions, all the furniture, jewels, and other movables she had used at various palaces, and the possession of her dower, which was, unfortunately for her, appropriated to her from the confiscated possessions of Lancaster. Edward expired at Westminster, April ninth, 1483. On the day of his death, his body, with the face, arms, and breast uncovered, were laid out on a board for nine hours, and all the nobility, the Lord Mayor and Aldermen of London, sent for to recognize it, and testify that he was really dead. Afterwards he was robed and clad royally, and the whole psalter was said over the body. And it was watched by bannerets and knights, in long black gowns and hoods. At the Mass of Requiem, the Queen's Chamberlain, Lord Dacre, offered for her. Her son, the Marquis of Dorset, and Lord Hastings, bore distinguished parts at the funeral. But the Earl of Lincoln, son of the Duchess of Suffolk, Edward IV's sister, attended as chief mourner at his uncle's burial. The royal corpse was finally taken by water to Windsor, and interred with great pomp, in the beautiful chapel of St. George. Skelton, the unworthy laureate of Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth, has made Edward the Fourth the subject of a poem, which probably first brought him into notice at the court of Elizabeth of York, daughter of the deceased monarch. I made the tower strong, I wist not why, knew not for whom, I purchased Tattersall, I strengthened Dover on the mountain high, and London I convoked to fortify her wall. I made Nottingham a palace royal, Windsor, Eltham, and many mo. Yet at the last I went from them all, et ecce nuc in pluveri dormio. Where is now my conquest and royal array? Where be my coursers and my horses high? Where is my mirth, my solace, and my play? As vanity is not, all is wandered away. Then addressing his widowed queen by the familiar epithet, which tradition says he was accustomed to call her, Edward is supposed to say, O oh, Lady Bessie, long for me ye may call, for I am departed until the doomsday, but love ye that Lord who is sovereign of all. 
Elizabeth was left, in reality, far more desolate and unprotected in her second than in her first widowhood. The young king was pursuing his studies at Ludlow Castle, and presiding over his principality of Wales, under the care of his accomplished uncle, Rivers, and under the guardianship of his faithful chamberlain, Vaughan, the same person who carried him in his arms, after the queen and his royal father, on all public occasions, when the little prince was a lovely babe of eighteen months. Elizabeth sat at the first council after the death of her husband, and proposed that the young king should be escorted to London with a powerful army. Fatally for himself and his royal master's children, jealousy of the Woodvilles prompted Hastings to contradict this prudent measure. He asked her insolently, against whom the young sovereign was to be defended? Who were his foes? Not his valiant uncle Gloucester, not Stanley or himself. Was not this proposed force rather destined to confirm the power of her kindred, and enable them to violate the oaths of amity they had so lately sworn by the deathbed of their royal master? He finished by vowing that he would retire from court if the young king was brought to London surrounded by soldiers. Thus taunted, the hapless Elizabeth gave up, with tears, the precautionary measures her maternal instinct had dictated, the necessity for which not a soul in that infatuated council foreboded but herself, and even she was not aware of her real enemy. The turbulent and powerful aristocracy, at the head of whom was Hastings, and who had ever opposed her family, were the persons she evidently dreaded. The Duke of Gloucester had been very little at court since the Restoration, and never yet had entered into angry collision with the Woodvilles. He was now absent at his government of the Scottish borders. When he heard of the death of the king, he immediately caused Edward V to be proclaimed at York, and wrote a letter of condolence to the queen, so full of deference, kindness, and submission, that Elizabeth thought she should have a most complying friend in the first prince of the blood. The council commanded Earl Rivers to bring up the young king, unattended by the militia of the Welsh border. Those hardy soldiers, who had more than once turned the scales of conquest in favor of York, and, if they had now been headed by the gallant rivers, they would have ensured the safety of Edward V. The astounding tidings that the Duke of Gloucester, abated by the Duke of Buckingham, had intercepted the young king, with an armed force, on his progress to London, had seized his person and arrested Earl Rivers and Lord Richard Grey, on the 29th of April, were brought to the Queen, at midnight, on the 3rd of May. Elizabeth then bitterly bewailed the time that she was persuaded from calling out the militia. In that moment of agony, she, however, remembered that while she could keep her second son in safety, the life of the young king was secure. Therefore, says Hall, she took her young son, the Duke of York, and her daughters, and went out of the palace of Westminster into the sanctuary, and there lodged in the abbot's place, and she and all of her children and company were registered as sanctuary persons. Dorset, the queen's eldest son, directly he heard of the arrest of his brother, weakly forsook his important trust, as constable of the tower, and came into sanctuary to his mother. Before day broke, the Lord Chancellor, then the Archbishop of Rotherham, 
who lived in York Palace, beside Westminster Abbey, having received the news of the Duke of Gloucester's proceedings, called up his servants, and took with him the great seal, and went to the queen, about whom he found much heaviness, rumble, haste, and business, with her conveyance of her household stuff into sanctuary. Every man was busy to carry, bear, and convey household stuffs, chests, and fardels, packages. No man was unoccupied, and some walked off, with more than they were directed, to other places. The queen sat alone below on the rushes, in a state of desolation. Another chronicler adds to this picturesque description, that her long fair hair, so renowned for its beauty, escaped from its confinement, and, streaming over her person, swept on the ground. A strange contrast with the rigid etiquette of royal widows' costume, which commanded not only that such profusion of glittering tresses should be hid under hood and veil, but that even the queen's forehead should be covered with a white frontlet, and her chin to the upper lip, with a piece of lawn called a barb. The faithful archbishop acquainted the sorrowing queen with a cheering message, sent him by Lord Hastings in the night. Ah, woe worth him, replied Elizabeth, for it is he that goeth about to destroy me and my blood. Madam, said the archbishop, be of good comfort. I assure you, if they crown any other king than your eldest son, whom they have with them, we will, on the morrow, crown his brother, whom we have here with you. And here is the great seal, which in likewise, as your noble husband gave it to me, so I deliver it to you for the use of your son. And therewith he delivered to the queen the great seal, and departed from her in the dawning of day. And when he opened his window and looked forth on the Thames, he saw the river covered with boats full of the Duke of Gloucester's servants, watching that no one might go to the queen's asylum. Sir Thomas More, and he ought to be a good authority for anything relating to the Chancellor's seals, affirms that the Archbishop, alarmed at the step he had taken, went afterwards to Elizabeth, then in sanctuary, and persuaded her to return the great seal, but Gloucester never forgave him for its original surrender. The apartments of the abbot of Westminster are nearly in the same state, at the present hour, as when they received Elizabeth and her train of young princesses. The noble stone hall, now used as a dining room for the students of Westminster School, was, doubtless, the place where Elizabeth seated herself in her despair, a low on the rushes, all desolate and dismayed. Still may be seen the circular hearth in the midst of the hall, and the remains of a louver in the roof, at which such portions of smoke, as chose to leave the room, departed. But the merry month of May was entered when Elizabeth took refuge there, and round about the hearth were arranged branches and flowers, while the stone floor was strewn with green rushes. At the end of the hall is oak paneling, lattice at top, with doors, leading by winding stone stairs, to the most curious nest of little rooms that the eye of antiquary ever looked upon. These were, and still are, the private apartments of the dignitaries of the abbey, while all offices of buttery, kitchen, and laundry are performed under many a quaint Gothic arch, in some places, even at present, rich with antique corbel and foliage. This range, so interesting as a specimen of the domestic usages of the Middle Ages, 
terminates in the abbot's own sanctum or sitting room, which still looks down on his lovely quiet flower garden. Nor must the passage be forgotten, leading from this room to the corridor, furnished with lattices, now remaining, where the abbot might, unseen, be witness of the conduct of his monks in the great hall below. Communicating with these are the state apartments of the royal abbey, larger in dimensions and more costly in ornament, richly dight with painted glass and fluted oak paneling. Among these may be especially noted one called the organ room, likewise the antechamber to the great Jerusalem chamber, which last was the abbot's state reception room, and retains to this day, with its gothic window of painted glass, of exquisite workmanship, a curious tapestry, and fine original oil portrait of Richard II. Such are the principal features of the dwelling, whose monastic seclusion was once broken by the mournful plaints of the widowed queen, or echoed to the still more unwanted sounds of infant voices. For, with the exception of the two beautiful and womanly maidens, Elizabeth and Cicely, the royal family were young children. The queen took with her into sanctuary Elizabeth, seventeen years old at this time, afterwards married to Henry the Seventh. The next princess, Mary, had died at Greenwich, a twelvemonth before this calamitous period. Sicily, whom Hall calls less fortunate than fair, was in her fifteenth year. She afterwards married Lord Wells. These three princesses had been the companions of their mother in 1470, when she had formerly sought sanctuary. Richard, Duke of York, born at Shrewsbury in 1472, was at this time eleven years old. Anne, born in 1474, after the date of her father's will, in which only the eldest daughters were named, was about eight years old. Catherine, born at Eltham, about August 1479, then between three and four years old. She afterwards married the heir of Devonshire. Bridget, born at Eltham, 1480, November 20th, then only in her third year. She was devoted to the convent from her birth, and was afterwards professed a nun at Dartford. End of section 19. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening and have a great day.